The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop. Join the Quarterly Fly Club today, your source for all things fly fishing. And wait for it films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube or at www.thewaitcreativeco.com. And Broken Tippet Fly Company. Blog and fishing apparel and accessories. Check them out online at brokentippet.com. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Um, I started that. A friend and I were both batting around at the idea of picking up all the qualifications and certifications to guide. Um, this was like twelve years ago. Ian and I were talking about that, and we both took the courses that were required to become a, a marine guide. And uh, he started looking for work at, with certain guiding outfits, and he'd taken an interview at Painter's Lodge. He ended up not taking a job there, but uh, he went further north. Um, at, but he told me that they were hiring rowing guides for the Taiyi Pool. And I went, rowing guides for the Taiyi Pool? I mean, I've done that a couple of times with buddies for nothing. I'd do that. <laughs> I, You know, they wouldn't even have to pay me, but I'm not going to tell them that. <laughs> and so I, I went in and I talked to the, the head guide of the rowing guides, his name was Bruce Aikman. We had coffee at a little greasy spoon called the the, the Ideal Cafe. Still there, still got the best breakfasts on the island. And uh, after talking with me, first thing he asked me, he says, do you steelhead? And I said, yeah. He said, have you used this? What kind of reels do you use when you're fishing with gear? And I said, center pin. He says, okay, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> I and I it. said, you don't want to see my certification? He goes, we'll take care of that later. And, and uh, then I met Dwayne Mustard, who was the head guide there. And uh, we talked for a while. And and uh, same thing. I said, uh, he said, okay, you'll start on uh, you'll start on July 15th if we have any clients. And I said, do you need my paperwork? And he goes, oh, yeah, I guess we better get that. <laughs> Coming this holiday season, a lighter look at ice fishing. Follow the Wake Creative Co. and Wake Forest Films for the upcoming full-length feature, Still Hard. A behind-the-scenes look at the Stillwater's crew finding their way on and off the ice. The Tarchuk, Green, Ermit, Roseboom, McDonald, Roxy Troller, and Fog Knuckles star in Still Hard. Coming this holiday season. Look for it soon on YouTube. Powered by the Jasper Brewing Company, Wake Forest Films, and the Fly Fishing 97 Podcast. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. The Fly Crate is an online fly shop where you can save more on flies and gear. Shop between hundreds of unique flies and join the quarterly fly club for hand-picked fly assortments for each season. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, you can save an additional 10% on The Fly Crate by using the code FLYFISH97. Go to theflycrate.com and use the code FLYFISH97 at checkout to save 10%. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us today, and we're going to do what we always like to do, and that's take a deep dive 
into the fly fishing world, and we're going to head out to a beautiful part of the world, Black Creek, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, and we have Rick Jansen on the line. Now, Rick is a, uh, a private guide for the Tai Pool, which we'll talk all about. He's a retired school teacher, avid outdoorsman, big time into hunting, fishing, and uh, I know has inspired a lot of folks on the island and beyond, and there's a lot we can dig into on this one. He just tells me he's stoked the fire. He's got the wood stove on the go. It's a cool night on the island, lots of snow, and uh, not too far from his tying bench either. Rick, thanks so much for doing this, my friend. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Mark. Thanks for giving me the call. So let's let's dig into your history, man. So um, I always like to start at the beginning. Like, how did you come to find fly fishing? Like, where did it first kind of arrive on the scene for you? Right, yeah. Hey, you know, this is an interesting story, and I've only told it very few times. So, so few people have been wanting to hear it. You know, you want to be respectful of these things. But <laughs> I caught my first fish on a fly in 1975 at the age of 15. I was in on Beaver Lake, just outside of Kelowna. Uh, yep. My family moved to Kelowna in 70, late 74, and I was with some friends. We were camping at Beaver Lake. Now, this friend of mine had this combination rod. It was really crappy at both things. It was a fly rod and a spinning rod, a telescopic steel thing, right? It had a bent tip, but uh, we were there camped, and he had put on a fly reel. He started casting at the lake shore there. And I said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, it's called fly fishing. I said, what's the point? He goes, well, you cast the line out and there's this bug on the end and you're supposed to, the trout are going to want to eat it. Well, I said, when you get a chance, give me a shot. Let me let me take it that, a try at that. And he said, sure, right now, go ahead. So I got out in there. I just, I just watched him for a few minutes. I kind of got the idea. Yeah, you're kind of whipping the line back and forth and you lay it out there. And lo and behold, I caught a rainbow trout. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's like hey this works <laughs> and uh that was the very first touch of fly fishing for me and um i had done it i'm i'm you know think of 15 year old kid i haven't even got my driver's license yet and uh, i'm living in Kelowna. i've got to rely on people for rides to places and stuff like that and uh i, I do some fly fishing through my high school years but it's kind of off and on and mixed with other things um and uh I'm just, it's just part of the whole fishing package for me at the time, right? Um, of course, at the same time, you're thinking about girls and graduating high school and getting a job and all this other stuff. So it's just this part of my life that's there and it's interesting. Um, I, I find it interesting, Rick, how it, um, fly fishing kind of is interwoven. You know what I mean? You make It seems like a lot of us, and I know I was guilty of it, you kind of go away from it in your teen years because there's other things going on, but you always come back to it. Yeah, exactly, right? Well, what happened is in um, in, when, in the 1980, I had moved back to the Lower Mainland, and um, some friends and I had been out fishing at Green Lake near Whistler. Now, Whistler is right now this thriving metropolis, but back then, it was a pretty small place, and uh, Green Lake was stocked with rainbows. It was pretty full of fish, and we'd had this wonderful bay fishing. Uh, a black hat, ant hatch was going on. And if you know about the carpenter ant hatch and you hit it right, the biggest fish in the lake will come to the surface for those things, right? And uh, we were just dragging around Doc Spratley's on spinning gear and uh, catching our, just a, just having a blast catching these fish. Well, one of my friends from that trip uh, a few weeks later said, you know, Rick, we should start tying all our own flies. It's, uh, 
uh, cheaper and, and you could get more of what you want. Well, he, he was right on the second part of that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. But I went, you know, that makes total sense, you know. Uh, where, where can we do this? And he, he took me down to Ruddock's Fly Shop in Vancouver. And from what I know, and I could be wrong on this, somebody could correct me, but at that time, I believe it was the only fly shop in the province. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. We had Kathy Ruddock on, and we were talking about that very thing. Like that, I have some great memories of going into there. It was a store they had that I remember that was in Burnaby. It was on bound, I think, just off Boundary Road. That's but, right. Yeah. 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 Well, I walked. I stepped into that store, and it was this emporium, right? The sanctuary to fly fishing. And I, I was 20 years old. And I'm just. I got a chill just looking at the place, going, "Oh, this is something else. This is what. This is what this is about." And I bought a fly kit, and it came with some hooks and some materials and a, a cheap clamp-on vise and a bob and a few other things. And I went, now i got to figure out how to use this stuff. And uh, uh, there were no classes that I could think of, but uh, and, 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 uh, books and magazines would have recipes for flies, but they didn't go into much detail of the technique and how you actually carry things out with it. So we we bumbled our way along a little bit. And then about the same time, I, I joined Richmond uh, Rod and Gun Club. And one night, somebody there offered to tie uh, a class of fly time for one evening, two or three hours. I went, I'm taking that. And so these guys, they showed us how to basically uh, layer and wrap things on a hook. And I went, okay, now I think I can figure this out. And uh, since ever since then, I've been tying my own flies fly fishing um i i used to go up to to merit from the lower mainland at the end of september um and that's my birthday month i'd go up for my birthday and i had an aunt, aunt and uncle that lived up there so i'd stay with them and i'd hit some of those lakes in late september and just the fishing was just fantastic hmm. and I'd, i i treated myself to several days on those merit area lakes before heading back to Lower, this was before the Coquihalla was built. So go up yeah. Fraser Canyon and drive in from Spence's Bridge, right? Mm, I remember the fishing before that highway went in. It was if you think it's good now, right? Oh man, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a blast! What a way to treat myself. This was before I got married, and um, and so fly fishing and that and, and the aura of it, the lifestyle, it has been a part of my life since since I was 20 years old. That's when I really decided. I'd go out on the front lawn or the back lawn and I'd practice fly casting in Richmond and people would walk by laughing at me. But I'm just like, I got to I gotta get accurate with this. And I have a piece of yarn on the end of the leader just to see if I could hit that dandelion over there or plant that <laughs> piece of yarn right near that bush without landing on the bush, get it underneath, you know? <laughs> I love but it. I was having a blast. So... If you kind of look back at at kind of your your journey from start to kind of where you're at now, if you had to pick a few names of people that maybe influenced you, maybe some of those uh, folks that were showing you how to tie flies in the early days, or maybe somebody that you happened to meet on a lake, who who would you cite as influences, Rick? I'm curious. Well, the the um, I, I would say the biggest influences on me were authors. Um, I didn't have direct contact with a lot of other fly fishers. The friend that introduced me to fly tying got married shortly after and kind of put it away and went on to do other things. And so I was floating alone there in Richmond trying to figure this thing out. And so I started to look for authors. I'm a reader. I love reading. So Roderick Haig Brown, um, Alf Davies' book, 
the Gilly, mm. uh, Jack Shaw's books, uh, Fly Fish the Trout Lakes. I would search out these authors and buy these books. I'd go to Ruddock's, they'd have some, and then I'd find out about others. And uh, Ihor Boyanowski, who used to fly fish the Coke before the Coca-Cola was built, there was the summer steelhead run there. Um, some of these people were huge influences, and I still read their book. I still have them. I still refer to them. And uh, these were the big influences on me in my fly fishing journey, right? Mm. Um, You're naming some names there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a friend of mine right now, I don't know if, if you're familiar with the magazine Fly Fusion. Oh, yeah, um, one of my faves. Yeah. I Derek think I know where you're going. Yeah, <laughs> We had Derek on. He's awesome. Derek Bird is a good friend of mine, and we we have fished off and on together for the last, oh, 15, 20 years. Uh, he teaches up here in Camel River, and we've we've been on a number of adventures together. Um, he's been, he though he's, he's 30 years my junior, or no, not 30, maybe 15 to 20. Uh, he's been a mentor as well, uh, coming from the Kootenays there with his flight, and he's such a purist in that sport. Uh, so I, I pay a lot of attention to some of these people around me and, and try to glean whatever I can off these giants. <laughs> mm, yeah, for sure. Derek's a big influence for sure. Yeah. And you talk about the, those books, like I can remember this is going back a long time, but I was basically a teenager, I think late teens, maybe in the fly fishing club locally. And we had, uh, Alf Davey come out and do a presentation yeah. on the ghillie and I got the signed copy beside me. And you right. talk about Jack Shaw fly fishing the trout lakes of course uh and we didn't mention brian chan but he's uh he's another legend guru that has some amazing books and and those those guys you're talking about kind of paved the way for so many people and you look at how far fly fishing has come since those days like there was there was no information out there right very little just what clubs would put out you know and and I got I have photocopied pages of uh, recipes for flies from I don't know which fly club the title is off the top basic casting um, leader construction and typically these these guys used to build their own leaders right and and I I copied that for a while constructing leaders from sections of mono until you got what you wanted um, just this really old stuff put out by clubs anything you could get your hands on was worth gold at the time. Mm, yeah for yeah. sure so yeah. so how has that changed in your sorry my dog's freaking out in the background hope you can't hear that yeah um how has that changed in your mind like as far as you know when you want to discover a pattern now what's your go-to i mean you mentioned fly fusion i'm sure that's on the shelf but where do you kind of go to create patterns and kind of look at what's hot and what's not Oh, there's uh, information so readily available right now, isn't it? Um, a lot of online stuff. I, I like Phil Rowley's work. I like Brian Chan. A thing I've noticed about Brian's flies is they're all really simple. He doesn't get very complicated in his fly tying. And I guess as a biologist, he he's, he relies a lot on his, his knowledge of the fish and the habitat and, and uh, how to fish the fish. The complexity doesn't really matter to him, right? Well, and I, that's something we talk about a fair bit in the past on this show, Rick, and that is kind of suggestive versus realistic. And I, I think suggestive patterns hit a lot of stops. So, oh, you know, it yeah. works, right? It, it's, I, there, was a, there was a book I read a while back, uh, a, a William G. Tapley, Those Hours Spent Outdoors. He's a, he lives in the eastern U.S. in the New Hampshire region, and his book's a mixture of fly fishing and grouse hunting and other things. 
And one chapter he spends on a fly called the near enough. They had a challenge amongst their buddies to say, if this one season, we're going to fish only one fly. That's the only fly we're allowed to use. But we are allowed to pare it down with a pair of scissors, uh, cut certain things off, and we're allowed to fish it wet or dry. But we're all going to fish the same fly and see what our results are. And at the end of that fishing season, basically there, April through October, they compared notes and said, you know what? We didn't do a whole lot worse than we do when we carry a box full of flies. (laughs) Well, think of those patterns, Rick, back in the day that were kind of suggestive, like 52 Buicks, Doc Spratleys, halfbacks, fullbacks. It's like, yeah, it might be a mayfly. It might be, depends on the size, right? And so suggestive. Yeah. Uh, You know, and I still fish. One of my favorite patterns for, for searching is a halfback. It represents a mayfly nymph. It also could represent a shrimp. Uh, in bigger sizes, it'd be a dragonfly nymph. Yeah, I mean, you never know what the fish are taking them as, but they seem to take them all the time. Yeah, amen. Okay, man, so I want to uh, take some time to get to know your personal kind of day-to-day on and off yeah. the water, okay? So yeah. s- something we like to do on the show, Rick, is talk tunes. Because for me, now maybe if you're with a good buddy and you're driving in the truck, the tunes aren't playing a big, you know, a big kind of background kind of thing, but... If you're listening to tunes on the way there, what's playing on the stereo? Oh, I'm usually listening to folk music of some kind. Um, there's a, a group called the Whalen Jennies out of Winnipeg yep. that I've enjoyed recently. Um, Bare Naked Ladies is great. You know, I, I'm really into just smattering of folk, uh, sometimes Celtic. Uh, I love some tunes that are just instrumentals and uh, that, that boost my energy, jig me up, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the, that's the kind of stuff I listen to when I when I want to listen to some music. Okay, so you just mentioned uh, a halfback, but now if you had to kind of generalize and pick a pattern that's kind of you're lost without it in your fly box, like this is a go-to for you. What do you reach for more often than not? You know, got it right, right there, the halfback. If I have a pair of scissors and I can do things with it, I'm going to uh, experiment with that and search and, and try to find, I'll cast it over the drop-offs and dredge it up. It's going to usually produce some fish for me. And with that what first fish, if I can pump its stomach, I can usually tell what they took it as and what they might, uh, what I might need to do to it to make it more attractive. So when you say halfback, are you talking like a pheasant tail pattern? Are you talking a peacock hurl pattern? What does it look yeah, like? Yeah, it's a mixture of peacock hurl and pheasant tail. So the, the way I tie it is it's uh, it's got some pheasant tail as a tail, a few fibers, a peacock curl that tapers up toward the head as a body. And that's usually reinforced with some some wire, either some copper or silver wire. And then it's got a, a, a pheasant tail a shell back on the thorax just at the head there. And that part of the fly is a little little fatter with the peacock curl. And uh, that and then the, uh, as a as a beard usually got some guinea fowl in there or some grizzly hackle or something just as a bit of a beard on it yeah that's money and that's that's a, that's been a go-to for a lot of years yeah i love it do you strip yeah. that peacock hurl at all or is it you just put it in in its full glory you know what i mean like are you kind of well, peeling some of that hurl back the peacock curl i'll put it in full and i'm usually using three or four strands of it and twist it together and then wrap it around the, the hook shank and, yeah, okay. and, and then cover that with the wire. Usually the wire is going the opposite direction because I don't want it to sink between the cores of those uh, peacock curl fibers. I want it to cross over them. 
Yeah, I'm yeah. picking up what you're throwing down. So kind of like a kind of like a Zugbug kind yeah. of style. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And that's that's a money fly. I was going to say that's that. One, <laughs> yeah. And if I could have it in no, numerous sizes, like from size 16 to size six, <laughs> then I, I'm going to catch a lot of fish with those. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So is there a place you go to talk fly fishing these days? Like, is there a fly shop locally? Is there a brew pub? Have you got a group on social media? Like, where do you get your fix on fishing when you're not out there? Well, Stillwater's uh, Facebook page is where I like to go to. There isn't a fly shop here. Uh, some of the tackle shops here carry have very small, small fly fishing sections, um, and you can be- get some stuff there. But these guys are really focused on the salmon fishing and the hunting, so they're, they're not really. They don't usually have a fly fishing expert in them in the store. I, I usually more know more than most of the the helping hands there. Right. Yeah. But, fair. Uh, but Stillwater's on a Facebook page. Um, I, I often watch the uh, YouTube videos from Phil Rowley's work and Brian Chan's work. Love that stuff. Stillwater Solutions. And uh, and that's where I go when I want to, you know, uh, just get a fly fishing fix in midwinter, you know? Yeah, love it. So do you do a lot of your tying this time of year as soon as things kind of cool down a little bit? Yeah, there's a hunting trip that a few, four friends and I go on every year at the end of October. Uh, we head out to the East Kootenays, uh, north of Cranbrook there, and just chasing whiteys and muleys. And after that's over, I get home, things have slowed down. My fly tying bench gets really busy. And I stay busy at it through, you know, March when I start hitting the local lakes. Hmm, yeah, they, well, your name is, <laughs> when you say north of Cranbrook, I'm thinking uh, there's some good fly fishing right there, too. <laughs> there is. There is yeah, the Kootenay River there is fantastic. And I'm always torn, right? I'm out on this trip with these buddies and we're all focused on hunting and I'm watching the drift boats go down the river going, Holy cow, I should be doing that. <laughs> Especially this year, the first week we got there, the highs during the day were like 18, 19 degrees. And you didn't want to harvest an animal in that weather. I'd much rather have been on the water. Yeah. I understand. I understand for sure. Yeah. Hmm. So are you a sports guy at all? So, um, you know, spending so much time yeah. on the Island, um, if you're cheering for your team, um, throw it out there. Who, who are you pulling for? I'm a hopeless Canucks fan. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> absolutely. I, the reason is when the Canucks uh, franchise was admitted to the NHL in 1970, I was 10 years old and my dad took me to the, one of the games, the very first season at Pacific Coliseum. And they were playing the Broad Street Bullies, filled mm-hmm. up the Flyers. And at the end of the game, both benches cleared and everybody was in a fight. And I was over the moon happy. <laughs> I'd just watch this hockey game and all these grown men on the ice fighting. This is, this is a great sport. <laughs> was, was that the Gary Smith kind of era? Was yeah. This Orland. Don back? Lever. Yeah. 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 Cool. And nobody was wearing helmets or visors. No. Uh, you knew who your guys were on the ice. You could tell by the way, their hair and their face, right? I, you and, know, I do miss that. And I get the whole safety thing and head, yeah. head, you know, concussions, all that stuff. But it's like when I, when we you used to watch hockey and there were no helmets, like you say, you knew who it was. And then they went to face masks and, or like, even yeah. like that bothered me too, for some reason. It's like, then you yeah. can't really see, I don't know what it was, but you it's. rely on the number and the name on the jersey, right? Your skating style. Yeah. But it wasn't, it was just. 
that's when I got to love the Canucks. Um, and I'm a diehard, whether they win or lose, I, I'm going to be cheering for them. And man, are they hurting right now? <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride, but I'm, yeah. with, I'm with you. I've, we moved out here in the mid 70s, so yeah. always kind of been Canucks on the TV in the background and uh, yeah. just never quite got to that next so close a couple couple times yeah, against so the rangers and yeah boston and against boston you know and the great thing about it is my wife's a bigger fan than i am and that's cool we we often go to uh my in-laws place her her parents to watch games together her parents are now in their mid-80s but we don't have that many more years with them but we enjoy watching hockey with mom and dad yeah. and cheering on the canucks whatever happens right it's a family thing right yeah good living so fill in the blank for me, Rick. When when you're not fly fishing, what are you normally up to day to day? There's a lot of things. I, I've got so many things and interests on my plate. Um, I We've got an acre here in Black Creek, and we a few years ago we planted 100 blueberry bushes. So we got a U-Pick blueberry operation out there. Um, we've got an orchard. We've got a vegetable garden and a big yard to work on. Making firewood for the heat in the house takes a good amount of time every every spring for me mm. um i ski i taught skiing up the local mount washington ski hill for eight seasons and so i'm off in the winter i'm up there when i when i can get up there um i paint and uh walk my dog and uh and then i'm fly tying when i'm through a lot of the days right just to, mm. to keep myself busy when you say you paint are you talking like acrylics are you talking? Uh, yeah, I'm talking watercolor. Yeah, watercolor. Um, okay. Yeah, cool. I started painting about six, seven years ago. It's a journey for me. Um, I've got four grandkids now, and so I started something that I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit puzzled as why I started. It's a real challenge. But uh, my first granddaughter, I painted her portrait when she was about eleven months old. Yeah. And now I'm expected to do that for the rest. And 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 my third granddaughter's just hit that age, and it's time to tackle that one. You know. <laughs> hmm. You done any fly fishing scenes yet? Uh, yeah, I have. I've got a couple around to my early part of my painting career, and I would paint them differently now. Mm-hmm. But I do a lot of scenes, a lot of scenics, rivers, uh, banks, uh, lakes, and beaches, and stuff like that. So cool. it, it uh, it's so immediate the fly the painting with watercolor because the uh, uh, the the way the the paints work versus acrylic and stuff you you really have to finish the painting once you started it that day and uh, you you know whether you're going to like it or not very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. It's it's um to me it's fascinating when you have time, right? So I'm I, I assume when you kind of stepped away from teaching and you retired, it could probably things opened yeah. up and you're like, okay, now now what? <laughs> well, exactly, and and so. I mean, I had started uh, I had started teaching skiing and and guiding on the Tai pool before I'd finished teaching, um, and uh, I was able to do those because the the skiing was Saturdays, um, just one day a week. I go up and teach lessons, and along came that with the you know the complimentary ski pass, so when I could get up there, I could ski for for my own pleasure, um, and I could do the Tai pool because it's primarily in August. And uh, so I'd have that month to work on it. And September was a bit of a stretch, you know, going back to school and finishing off the tie pool and, and by mid-September. But uh, I did that for a while before I retired and was able to balance the two. Okay. But uh, I, I got those going. 
sorry, go ahead. I had those going before I retired, so I just kept going with those, you know? <laughs> well, okay, so I got a tough question for you. So if you had to pick a job, and it sounds like, you know, between teaching, skiing, guiding, you've done a lot of different things, fairly diverse yeah. kind of career path. What's the best gig in your mind? If you could just keep doing it, are, are you well, still still doing it? That's a tough question because, you know, the most rewarding work I ever did was working school, teaching school, um, seeing kids uh, grow, grow in their confidence, their knowledge and their abilities. Uh, there's nothing like that. And to know that you're a part of it and you're a part of making it fun for them to do that. Um, that's the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. Cool. Uh, but at the same time, I, you know, I wouldn't have given up the other things I've done, uh, for anything you know they're they are peripheral a guy's got to have some interest besides their work you know I, I remember roderick haig brown reading one of his books and i'm not sure i can recall which book it was in but his opinion was the same he said that a man's life should the most rewarding thing he should do should be his work whatever he's doing for his career but aside from that he needs interest to pursue and uh, on the side, something to refresh his mind and relax him. And I agree with him 100%. You know, it's that's kind of why I do this podcast. For me, if you can do something not to get paid, you know what I mean? If you're yeah. doing it just for, because you love it, yeah. whether you get paid or not is irrelevant. Um, yeah. I mean, we all need to get paid in their day jobs, pay the bills, all that good stuff. But but yeah. to have that kind of focus thing, and I, I could be wrong, but I, this is a bit presumptuous but is guiding that for you you know your your kind of outlet that like oh, man i love this i'm gonna do it regardless yeah. yeah it is it absolutely is um i started that a friend and i were both batting around the idea of picking up all the qualifications and certifications to guide um this was like 12 years ago ian and i were talking about that and we both took the courses that were required to become a, a marine guide and uh he started looking for work at, with certain guiding outfits and he'd taken an interview at painter's lodge he ended up not taking a job there but uh he went further north um and, but he told me that they were hiring rowing guides for the tie pool and i went rowing guides for tie pool i mean i've done that a couple of times with buddies for nothing i'd do that <laughs> i you know they wouldn't even have to pay me but i'm not going to tell them that <laughs> and so i i went in and i talked to the the head guide of the rowing guides his name was bruce aikman we had coffee at a little greasy spoon called the the, the ideal cafe still there still got the best breakfasts on the island and uh after talking with me at first thing he asked me he says do you steelhead and i said yeah he said have you used this? what kind of reels do you use when you're fishing with gear and i said center pin he says okay you're hired <laughs> <laughs> I and i said you don't want to see my certification? He goes, we'll take care of that later. And, and uh, then I met Dwayne Mustard, who was the head guide there. And uh, we talked for a while. And and uh, same thing. I said, uh, he said, okay, you'll start on uh, you'll start on July 15th if we have any clients. And I said, you need my paperwork? And he goes, oh, yeah, I guess we better get that. <laughs> so we got the paperwork in. And lo and behold, you know what? The first thing. The first client I had was about the end of July, this the first year out there. And what do they have to ask me? How long have you been doing this? <laughs> well, I was 50, 51 uh, at the time. 
And how do you tell the truth without embellishing? Right? <laughs> <laughs> turn the months into years. What do you, what do you start making? Well, you know, I yeah, just I've been playing around at it for a few years with some friends, and we've been going out and playing it. But this is my first paid gig, so let's get out there and enjoy what I've been doing for fun. And so, <laughs> so that's how I was able to dodge it a little bit. <laughs> but uh, it's been eleven seasons out there, and uh, and I do it. Every season, I get paid a, a certain number of clients, and I'm usually doubling that with the number of times I go out for free. That's so cool. That's cool. I'll take out my wife, my kids, yeah. friends, um, guests from out of town, and so like I'm I'm aiming to go out there forty to fifty times in the month of August, and uh, each time we're out there, we're out for two to two and a half hours. And, uh, I often go I, every year I'll go out alone once or twice, just because I would love to land a tie self-guided and, uh, that would, that's a real accomplishment, but, uh, I do a lot of that and, uh, and eventually I'll stop doing it for the money. Um, because I, there, there are, there's ups and downs to that too, you know, juggling clients and, and keeping them happy and stuff as it's a great piece of work to do but uh mm-hmm. eventually i'll just do it for pleasure and i'll i'll tell them to take me off strike me from the guide list <laughs> well we've got rick jansen on the line now rick is a private guide for the tai pool uh just outside of campbell river well, why don't we talk about that rick and because i i suspect there's people listening to this podcast that don't necessarily know what the tai club is all about and i think it's quite a it's a very interesting story. There's a lot of history to it. Um, why don't you kind of tell us about how it all started and wh- what it's all about? Well, okay. The brief history is before European contact, First Nations would be fishing all over the province in very efficient ways. You know the methods. You, you probably had them in high school classes where they fished with weirs and traps and nets. Uh, and the Europeans noticed this, and of course they wanted to take uh, advantage of the resource too when they when they came over here in the 1800s. But the one thing they noticed was off the Campbell River, these young Native guys would go out in a canoe, and one guy'd be paddling, and the other guy'd be handled uh, dangling a handline. And uh, when they hooked one, all of them would shout out "Tai Tai Tai," means the chief. And these Europeans looked on and said, you know, what's going on here? These guys are fishing not just for the village food supply. They're fishing for sport. And so we want to get our hands on that. And so some of them began to natives as guides and go out uh, with their rod and line. And about 1890, the word got out to England that this was going on, catching these giant salmon at Campbell River. And uh, tourism just took off. It put Campbell River, British Columbia, Canada on the map world. And uh, people started coming, and, and there was no Thai club at the time. It was just these guys that wanted to come out here, sometimes with their wives, and fish uh, for these giant salmon, 50, 60, 70, 80-pound salmon. Uh, and they'd pay the guides to take them out, and, and they left let the uh, natives keep all the fish. Well, the early part of the 20th century rolled around. Campbell River was growing, and uh, there's certain people actually the interesting thing about this that were concerned about the conservation of the resource at the time way ahead of their time this we're talking like the 1920s when fish were still super abundant but they could see 
they could see ahead. They could read the look in the crystal ball and go, you know, but this isn't going to last forever if we just keep pounding it like this. We've got to do something to give the fish a fighting chance, and that's their motto. So one of them was a hotel here in Campbell River and was looking to increase his business. One of them was a doctor from Vancouver, and another was a sportsman from California. And they established the Thai Club in 1924. And they based it on the rules of the, the Catalina Club in California, uh, which fishes for tuna in similar ways off Catalina Island. And they, they modified it to some degree, and they said, let's put on an annual tournament. It's not a derby. There's no cash prizes. This is a tournament purely for bragging's sake. Every summer, the Thai Club is going to put on a tournament, and the only way to join the club and become a member is to land a Thai Chinook salmon of 30 pounds or more by Thai Club rules. You cannot join the club in any other way. And, and that's what's been going on since 1924. Um, back in the day, they would register 300 to 400 Thai in a season. Uh, nowadays, unfortunately, a good season is 40, 40 plus fish. But it's still going, and we're going to celebrate our 100th anniversary in, uh, night, in 2024. So uh, this is the Thai Club. Um, there's been a long association between the club and Painter's Lodge, but there's no official connection between the two. And uh, Painter's Lodge often had 20, 30, 40 working for them. And they'd go out there and help clients to try to get in the club. Um, nowadays, uh, there's only about a handful of us, maybe a dozen, that do it for hire. And uh, none of us work anymore. We're all independent. And uh, we're the only way that a person from out of town who doesn't have access to a boat and all the gear, they, we're the only way for them to experience it. And so it's a, great to have us there still because this thing is still going. There's still great big fish out there. And uh, we're carrying on a long tradition. Well, and, and so so the main part, it, the boat has to be rowed. Is that correct? That's you can't right. have a motor. So okay. the foundational rules of the of the joining the Thai Club is during fishing, the boat has to be rowed. Um, and the uh, lure has to be of a type that's designed to be trolled. That means that you're taking out your jigs. You've got basically spoons and plugs. So this is getting away from fly fishing. But and the, the the rod has to be between six and nine feet long with fishing line of no greater than 20 pound test. That's the gist of it. And those rules haven't changed in the 100 years of the club. Um, nowadays, in addition to that, single barbless hook is uh, is required by federal law and the club's uh, desire for conservation. Or way back in the day, they were allowed to fish treble barbed hooks and stuff. That's the only significant change original members would notice, I think, when they, if they looked at what was going on at the Thai Club today. And let's talk about fish size. To be considered a Thai, this Chinook or spring salmon needs to be how big? 30 pounds or more. Now, uh, there, the club has um, a series of awards, obviously, because it's a tournament. And so anybody that lands the tie, a, a, a fish that's a tie, is awarded a lapel pin of a specific color, uh, the lowest being bronze for 30 to 39 pound fish. Then the colors change in 10 pound increments up from there through silver, gold, diamond, and ruby. 
Um, and then in addition to the lapel pins, which you, you, you are awarded upon landing a tie of a certain class, there are annual trophies for the tie man of the year. There's the largest uh, tie of the season landed by a woman, by a junior, somebody 16 or under. There's the largest tie landed on a single action reel uh, versus uh, multiplying like a, a level wind. Um, then there's a few awards trophies for the guides as well. Uh, the one that I've been pursuing specifically in mind is the Dick Murphy Award. That's the, to the rower who uh, registers the most members to the club in a season. And so people who have never landed a tie before. And uh, that would be a great trophy to get. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. And uh, I can remember growing up hearing so much about it. And it's, it sounds like a lot of people have been kind of, um, let's just say, flocking to Campbell River to do this over the years. And yeah. I think it's yeah. pretty cool. It's a tr tradition that uh, still keeps going. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 It's a long and, it, you know, it has a favorable relation with the local First Nations now. It's working on that relationship. It's got a very favorable relationship with the city of Campbell River. Um, and there have been federal regulations around the waters in Campbell River there to protect this fishery. The, in fact, the piece that we call the Taiyi Pool, which is uh, a long Taiyi spit in front of Campbell River, if you can picture this piece of water between Campbell River and Quadra Island, Discovery Passage is about a mile wide. Of that, near the Campbell River shore, the 400 meters out from shore and about 700 meters long, this rectangular piece of water is no motors allowed in during Taiyi season. It is the only marine no motor section in Canada. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, well, that sounds pretty, uh, pretty amazing. I know you spend a lot of your time doing this and it sounds like namely in August, um, yeah. which mind you, when you were teaching probably worked out pretty well too, right? It did. Yeah. It was very complimentary to my teaching career. Mm. Yeah. What's the worst job you've ever had? Now we're talking about oh. your best job. What, what's the one thing you did that you go, man, I, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. Oh man. I, I've told everybody this and it never changes. I worked one summer at a place in North Delta where it was for Rivto Strace and we were building uh, concrete floating blocks for marinas. And uh, so we would get into this warehouse, which was this Quonset hut of metal with no insulation and blazing hot summer. We had 14 or 15 square or rectangular forms there that we have to pop open and pop yesterday's blocks out of. And these things were about uh, four feet high about six feet wide and about 10 feet long, the, these forms. And we'd pop the old blocks out using a crane to lift them out, reassemble them, clean them, grease them. And then we had to build the blocks for today. And so you're working with concrete all day and you can't, your skin can't be exposed to that stuff for very much time. The lion, it just eats through your skin. And uh, so you have to wear this full rubber suit, rubber boots, rubber gloves up to your elbows. And it's blazing hot in this uninsulated Quonset. And boy, did I sweat. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that sounds like a tough, tough there, go. There are a whole bunch of angry guys working there. And so every day, every single day, and now I'd be driving from North Delta back to Richmond. I'd stop at the first 7-Eleven, buy myself a big, big gulp, drink it on the way home and tell myself I'll quit tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I made it somehow. I made it to August thirty first, <laughs> the end of the summer when I went back to school. I went every day in my mind. I was quitting tomorrow. <laughs> oh yeah, I love it. You saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Well, I had a. Yeah, everybody's got to have one of those where you persist and you 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 gotta you got it out right. Char- you got to do it just because <laughs> character building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, love it. Um, this is a little bit of a tough one, but why do you do this? Like, what, what do you get out of spending all this time in the bush, hunting, fishing, spending time at the tying bench, chasing fins? What, kind of, what does it bring into your world? I guess, Rick is what I'm asking. I hear you. It's a good question. You know, um, just the uh, nature is a touchstone for me. It's, it's something where I feel grounded when I'm involved in it and, and I'm paying attention to the natural world. When I was involved in teaching, um, they talked about the different intelligences, you know, the uh, uh, the athletic, the artistic, the linguistic, and all these different intelligences. They had like five of them. And we, we, the talk was that we've got to tap into the intelligences of each of our students. We've got to find out what they are so we can reach them. And later they grew that list and they said there's this other area called the natural intelligence. And one of my colleagues said, that's you. And I went, what? He goes, well, you can see a bird flying half a mile off and you can tell what species it is. And I went, well, yeah. But he goes, not everybody can do that. Mm. I went, really? <laughs> you know, and, you know, spending time watching wildlife, watching the seasons, watching even plants and fungi, knowing what happens when is um, it's just super grounding. I feel like mm. like like I belong. Um, and now when I'm watching weather patterns, and what's happening, like we had this long, dry drought here. And I'm just looking at the forest and looking at the ground. And I go, you know, this is the hard part. Things don't feel right. They just don't feel right in the natural world. The, fe- the natural world feels stressed. And we've got to do more to relieve the stresses on it. And so it inspires me to look after it. I want my grandkids to be able to be some of the things I've done, even if they choose not to, I want them to be able to, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and to have, have it ha- like, just have a feel for nature, things, the insects, the, the, the animals, the, the plants that are out there to, to appreciate the richness of that. You know, I think it's funny. He's mentioned kind of bird watching. I'm, I'm big on that too. And I'm, I'm by no means a birder, but I've definitely peg a lot of species spend a lot of time and insects you know i think with the entomology aspect of fly fishing it can really help your game but yeah speak to maybe like the observation skills it takes to do that because for me that's something that we don't talk about a lot and i think observing you know whether it's hatches the insects that are um you know starting to rise in the water column um the swallow that's picking off the chronomids in the corner those kind of little details yeah. really can help your game yeah exactly be you, you one of the questions in your your list there had to do with that and i said the, one of the biggest lessons i had early on was be observant um don't just focus on what you're doing in the fishing look around um spend some time mucking in the shallows of the, of the, of the lake and or the and, and turning over stones and logs and stuff like you did as a kid and look at those creepy crawlies down there now you can put a name to those and they might tell you something that's going to pay off. Right. <laughs> yeah. No fair. And I had somebody on the show, um, a, um, oh, shoot. 
his name is escaping me right now, but I'll edit it in later. Um, yeah. He was saying, okay, so it's one thing you roll over the rocks and you see with your eyes what's going on out there, but why not look at a spider web? Because that is like a collection ground of the latest and greatest totally. of what's happening. And I, I never thought of that. Never yeah. thought of that when I used to go out there. Exactly. Like those things are nets, right? Just capturing everything that's going on. And if you're driving down and you're to the boat launch and there's some spider webs close by in the bushes, why not have a peek? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, spider sure. webs come in in a very interesting way in a totally different uh, field of mine um, in hunting deer. And the falls, the orb spiders are extremely busy. They're building webs all over the place, right? And this one time I had taken a shot at an animal and it run and I'd had to track it. And as I'm tracking it, I'm getting to areas um, in the deep West Coast uh, Salal here in undergrowth. And I'm pushing around and all of a sudden I see a spider web on the trail and I go, boy, you didn't go that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and those those orb weavers, they they kind of do some pretty kind of webs too. They're uh, very symmetrical, yeah. right? Yeah, it just dawned on me like this deer is hard to find, and I will find. I did find it, but I could go, I could start b- picking his path by where the spider webs were and where they weren't. Hmm. Yeah, that's you know? fascinating. I love those kind of observations. Huh. Um, if. I mean, you spend a lot of time painting. I know you spend a lot of time tying. So you obviously have this creative desire and kind of need to express uh, what's going on. Paint us a picture verbally of your dream day. So if, let's say you're fly fishing, whether it's still water, river, salmon, steelhead, trout, whatever you're chasing, let us know what's your perfect day look like. Is there a warm cup of coffee in hand to kind of walk us through your dream day? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I would have to go with what I cut my teeth on fishing a small lake in the anywhere between Princeton and Little Fort, somewhere in the uh, Merritt, Kamloops or, or uh, South Caribou area there. And it's a small lake, maybe a mile long. Um, and I and I'm driving there usually with a friend or a family member. This it, it, right now fishing so much more fun with somebody else around. Um, we're enjoying a cup of tea and we're having a nice quiet talk and we get to the lake and maybe there's some other parties there and I'm not, don't really care to have a lake to myself, although it's nice when it happens, right? Um, have another company around is, is all part of the fun. Uh, we get out on the lake and it's, so it's, it's one of these Merritt Kamloops, uh, spring fed alkaline lake, really rich reeds on the shore. The red winged blackbirds are singing. Uh, mix of sun and cloud. And there's a bit of riffle on the lake. You just know it's going to be a great day, probably in the third or fourth week of June, um, maybe even to early July, depending on its altitude. Launch the boat. I get out a searching pattern. We always start with searching. And uh, unless I have some local intel that's very current, I will put on a sinking line. My, I usually have my, my partner do that same thing. And we'll put on a couple of carry specials or a Doc Spradley or a leech. And we'll start rowing along the drop-offs. And I love rowing because of what it does to a fly. <laughs> I won't troll with a motor unless I have... I won't troll with a motor. My motor is to get there. Um, if I am trolling, I'll, I'll pull out the oars. And we'll just quietly paddle along the, the drop-offs or shoals looking for a fish. When we get that first one, we'll pump its stomach. And what, what a dream day for me is to find some caddis pupa in there. 
Oh yeah. I feel that because I know what's coming. Right. So then after we've done that, we find a productive drop off. We'll start casting some caddis pupa over the edge, maybe even a halfback. And we start pulling up fish from as they're cruising the, the drop off. And I'm anticipating a caddis hatch. And when it comes, you see those first traveling sedges on the surface. Doesn't matter if they're small or big. Um, I'm ready for both. I've got my Miculac sedge. I've got my Elkhair caddis. I've got something on there that's going to get them up at the surface. And if it's mid-afternoon or if it's just at dusk, we start throwing those dries on the surface and skating them over the water. And I'm just looking for those wash tub size boils that drown the fly. And, and you're waiting for the tug. <laughs> oh, yeah. The toilet you... the toilet bowl swirl. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. That That's a dream. I, you know, I love chronomid fishing. Uh, I, I totally makes the season way longer. And I like it, too, when the mayflies are going. But t- if I want an ideal day, I want a caddis hatch. <laughs> mm, yeah, me too. And that's you, you hit on July. That is often the month. Yeah. Kind of late June, depending on the weather and the elevation, but uh, yeah. late June, early July is kind of usually yeah. where that's at. And, you know, I had a day like that when, you know, this is with this going back now. Um, gosh, it's going back 33 years when my, my son was just born. My wife and I and my son, we went up camping in the cattle, the Douglas Lake um, cattle country, ranch country. And uh, we were fishing Glimpse Lake, which isn't too far from Salmon Lake. Yeah, I fished that one a few times. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, we'd been out there with another couple camping and they had just left. So I'd been out in the afternoon and I found a, you know, in that day, all I could afford was a canoe. And I had a couple of milk bottles full of gravel for anchors, you know, (laughs) one off the bow, one off the stern. I paddled out to this drop off and dropped the anchors and I started casting over the drop off and working a half back up the, up the bank. And I was pulling some nice fish up. And I, I noticed a guy cruising along the drop-offs casting a dry fly. And I thought, he's anticipating a caddis hatch. I wonder what time of day that's going to happen. Um, so I'm watching. Nothing happened during the afternoon. Then I got to go in, have a bit supper with the family, preparing supper. We're camping, and my son's less than a year old. And, and uh, we get him put to bed, and I tell my wife, Judy, I'm just going to go out for half an hour now, just as the sun's setting. <laughs> and uh, and I get out to the same shoal there, and I find this one sunken island. And I drop the anchors, and nothing's rising. But I thought of that guy casting caddis, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll put on my dry dry line, and I'll I'll put on a big Miculac sedge here that I've tied, and I'll cast it out over there. And I'll just start skating it in. Very first cast, bam, the thing's gone. And I I think I went made four casts, and there were four fish. And the moon came up, it got dark, and I went, I'm stopping right now. Nothing could improve this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. doesn't get any better. Yeah. You, you said something earlier in, the, in our conversation that stuck with me because it's a hatch that fascinates me, and you never know when you're going to see it, and that is that carpenter ant, like the black yeah. ants. Man, it's, I, I've always, I'm always trying to... It happened to me this year, like on on a, on a real well known trophy lake in the Kamloops region with some big big fish, and they were going crazy, and I was pulling my hair out, what little hair I have left. <laughs> what is it going to take? And I finally, you know what I did? I put on it was just an old kind of uh, 
real antique looking pattern I happened to pick up in Peachland of all places in a damn hardware store because I, yeah. I was like, I don't have any caddis. So I was looking for caddis, but I saw these ants. I go, what if there's an ant hatch? And it was just, you know, like it had the little wing on it. It, it did yeah. not float, but they didn't want it to float. They were taking it subsurface. Yeah, just in the top six inches of the water, but yes. Gotta be below. <laughs> exactly. And I'd never yeah. experienced that before because I could see yeah. the swirls, but they weren't taking them on the top. They were taking them literally in the first foot of water. Yeah. yeah uh, first amazing. cast, big fish. And it was just big like fish. game yeah. on. But the, yeah. the thing about that ant hatch, Rick, is what, and I don't know this to be true because I'm not a biologist, but apparently I've heard from people that there's some acid or some, some type of thing. Basically, if the fish get gorged on ants, they're going to sulk for a while. They're going to sulk for a few days. That's absolutely true. I've heard the same thing about the formic acid. The other thing I've heard is perhaps their their hard exoskeleton takes a, quite a while to digest, okay. and they're just stuffed, right? Mm. Um, and so that could be another reason, uh, you know. So we just have to guess at that. But you 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 hit the nail on the head. They are going to be down for three or four days after that. Um, but if you hit it right man it's fantastic for, oh. for the day you're there what um, now what 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 do you use when those carpenter ants those big flying black ants are hatching what what's your go-to is there a specific well, I, pattern i've created some patterns i haven't given them any names other than black ant you know and uh, but the other one you know surprisingly is a black dock spratly tear out half that wing scrunch them up so that they're ugly and scraggly looking and and chuck them out there wet and let them just sink down in that first foot of water. They're gonna work. Yeah, that's what we were catching them on then. It's they're black. They're the right size, and they've got that brown wing that those ants have on their back. Uh, you could do a lot worse than that fly. Yeah, than during a good ant hatch. As long as you're fishing it right, those fish are gonna nail it. That's a good point. I've also done really well, and not that I fish Doc Spratleys like ever anymore, because it just, you know, it's like when you start yep. out, you've got these general patterns that you know work, but then like you say, you, th you see a throat sample and you're like, I want to do a deep dive on this. We're not only going to fish chironomids, we're going to fish the right size chironomid, the right color with the right rib. Yeah. Yep. And if you've ever had one day where you lined it up, it's like a drug. It's like, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah. I, I was dialed in. I knew what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, it was, it's exactly what you, what you said there. I first started fishing chronomids back in the, um, back in about the mid eighties. Um, more seriously, like I, a lot of my early fly fishing was, was bigger bugs and, and, and experimenting with patterns and stuff, but it really got under the chronomids. This was the ironic thing is right in the middle of Abbotsford, there's this little lake in a park called Mill Lake. Oh yeah. yeah. We lived about a block from it and the, the, and in an apartment when we were first married and, um, I, I was, I was, I go down the lake because they stocked that lake with Fraser Valley's. And uh, occasionally they throw in some of the brood stock from the Fraser Valley hatchery there. Some pretty big fish. There's a lot of really old guys that would fish the shore with bait. But I had this one little spot on the shore where I'd go down in the evening with my fly rod. And I had a dry line. And I could see the fish rising. They were, it was like clockwork. At dusk, every evening, they'd come in closer to the shore and just rise and rise and rise. And I went, I know what they're taking. I see these chronomids hatching. And so back then, I just tied basically this thread fly black thread with a silver rib and a peacock curl head it was that simple tied number 14 or 12 
and I put on a dry line and about a 12 foot leader. And I had this leader um, uh, gum wax. And you'd wax the leader to make it float. Uh, but, and I'd wax it up to about within a foot of the fly so that the fly would sink down just a few inches below the surface. I lay that out there from my spot on the shore and I just watched the leader and I just inched that fly in like an inch at a time, dead slow. And that leader would suddenly dive or take off to the left or right and fish on. And I just went, this coronament thing is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I could do it right here in Mill Lake. I wonder what I could do in the interior. <laughs> yeah, it, it is addictive for sure. Yeah. I love it. So um, if somebody wants to book a trip with you for, uh, let's say they want to go for the Thai, um, yeah. where is the best place to find you? I do have a website, uh, taipooladventures.com, and they can look me up there and message me through that and uh, book it. I have uh, clients that come back every year. Like I've got a client from North Vancouver. I've, I've taken them out for 11 seasons. Um, and usually books four or five days for me in mid to late August. Um, and they, I usually hear from him sometime in January, <laughs> you know, and get my, he gets his, his Thais fishing booked in early. Yeah. Uh, but that's the best way. And, uh, and there's a, a website connection, uh, email connection on there. They can email me that directly. If they happen to be in Campbell river in the, in month of August and they go down to the Thai club, and they just all they got to do is ask around. Where's the Thai club? It's on Thai Spit Road. Um, they have a phone list there of the, the hired hireable guides, and my name is on that list. That's another way to get a hold of me, or directly through my personal email, which is rickjansen5 at gmail.com. I heard through the grapevine that uh, your name might be at the top of that list. Uh, that is actually, yeah. I don't know how that happened, frankly, and it's still a bit of a mystery to me, but uh, that's where it sits. <laughs> and there's, so there's not a lot of guides that are private, I assume. On Is it mostly, you know, working for the lodge? Well, no more guides work for the lodge, uh, rowing guides that ended with COVID. Uh, COVID really hammered the uh, guiding industry up here. And uh, so Painter's Lodge doesn't have any more rowing guides. So when I when I got out, it just coincidentally got out at the right time just a few years before that and went independent. So all the the uh, hireable guides now are private and they're hmm. on that phone list. And, and uh, I don't know if any others have have websites. I, I believe I may be the only one with a website. Uh, I had a client last summer from the States, which is, was the first one since COVID hit. I, I, they were normally... A, a staple of mine that my American clients, but COVID hammered that. And uh, the first one last year was back. And I said, so I'm just curious as to how you, uh, you found me. I, I suspected it was a friend who had referred me, um, but they said, no, we just tie, uh, Googled Thai pool guides and you're the first name that came up. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so, full disclosure, yeah. I did the same thing. Yeah. So when I, <laughs> The, here's the funny thing for me. Domain names are like like staking your claim, right? Uh, back in the gold rush days. And uh, when I wanted to set up the website, I, I looked up tiepool.com. And lo and behold, it hadn't been taken. So I said, I'm buying that. <laughs> and hmm. that's what I've got. So my name on my website is tiepooladventures.com, tiepooladventures or tiepool.com. And that you can find me either way. 
How's that fire? Do you need to stoke that fire? Throw another that log on it? Fire's doing fine. That it is? Yeah. Yeah. Is, um, how, many, how much snow you got on the ground right now? We've got a, a little over two feet. Jeez. That's a lot, isn't it? Is it not yeah, for the island? Works. Well, the you know what? The island's typical weather patterns, we get snow for a day or two, and then it turns to rain and washes away. Um, and up higher on the mountains, the ski hill, it stays all season. The last couple of years have been strange. Last last December, we got three feet in the early part of December. And we had snow on the ground, remnants of it, and the new snowfall all the way to March, which was wow. okay. That doesn't happen very much. And here it's looking to shape up. We'll see. We've got some rain coming this weekend, according to the forecast, whether it'll wash it away. We've got three days of warmer weather and rain right over Christmas. So we'll see what happens with that. Good stuff. So is this is now when you kind of spend a lot of time at the Vice with a little snow on the ground and uh, a little more time? Absolutely. I got the Vice here. Uh, I've got my computer and uh, my wood stove, and I keep circulating amongst the three of those, right? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds sounds pretty good. Out of curiosity, because I love talking time, what... What do you tie on? Is there a brand vice you like to use? What are you What are you using these days? You know, I've got a Regal knockoff. Do you you know the Regal vices? Yeah, like the spring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the spring spring one, and yeah. that's what I've got. It's a knockoff on that. At the time I bought it, I couldn't afford a Regal, but I saw this one, which was about a third of the price, and I went for it. And it's got the solid base. Um, and it, I haven't looked back since. This this vice is going to last me the rest of my life. Um, that's what I use. And, uh, and I'm, you know, unless there's a time when I need something rotary that'll spin for me, um, I'm happy to just work with, with, with that piece of equipment. Are you sitting there tying up those halfback patterns you're going to, you know, you're going to need, or are you experimenting a lot? I'm doing so. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm filling the box with some things that I've lost during the season. If I've lost some ASB chronomids or something like that, or some uh, snow cones, whatever. I'm, I'm replacing those and filling those gaps. But I'm also looking to experiment with some things. I've got some new materials here from Togans and from Canadian Lama, and I'm wanting to see how I can incorporate, incorporate those, some, some uh, buzzer wrap and some Coroni skin and stuff like that. And I'm looking to see how this can improve certain, certain other patterns that I've been working with. I love working with buzzer wrap. I, I use it religiously and I think I, I don't have every color, but I've got most of them. It's yeah. so yeah. nice to work with. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. With it, you know, the stuff you have is to have that natural taper taper to it. Uh, well, I kind of stretch it when I okay. need to. Right. Yeah. So it's just, uh, I don't know, just buzzer wrap and like just about every color I can, can think yeah. of and now that the colors that you can get with with that product has changed over the years like it was just a yeah. few to begin with now it's uh yeah i think i use a root beer one a lot uh there's right. an olive one i find that root beer one works real well around here yeah yeah would, would that be a magic brown, brown magic bead oh uh, amen yeah that's my go-to the brown oh, magic man. bead i you know what's funny so and i don't know if this has been your experience rick but I want to go back about, we were on Roche Lake maybe 10 years ago, and we had to have a black bead. It had to be black. And then the next year it had to be white. And it's like now this magic brown seems to be the the ticket. Do you find fly patterns 
not that they ever get tired, but they evolve almost. Like think about, and I know you still like to use the halfback in some of these old school patterns, but think of things that you're catching fish on now, like boobies and blobs and whatever that you never probably had in your box 10, 15 right. years ago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's funny because, uh, what is it? The fish evolving? Is it what's going on? You know, yeah, a pattern will come on for a while and then it'll seem to go dead. Yeah. Yeah. I, know? I, then, I, we had one, you know what it was? So I fish a lot of damsel patterns and yeah. we had a pattern 25 years ago. Uh, it was actually probably 20 years ago. It was just called a black damsel. It was a damsel marabou. It was black. Yeah. So it Black. could be a leech. It could be a lot of yeah. things, but that thing just slayed for like five years yeah. and I'll still use it on occasion, but it doesn't work like it used to. And I don't know why anymore the way it used to. Yeah. You know, and I wonder if that has to do with confidence. Um, you know, so much fishing of fishing is confidence in what you're, you're putting in the water. Right. And, and after we do it and we, we maybe have a bad day, our confidence just flags on it. And, uh, and then we don't fish it as much or don't fish it as hard or as right and concentrate. I just wonder if it has to do with that. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe it's, maybe it's the fish. Um, but I, 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 it makes me wonder sometimes. Yeah. No, I think you have something there. I think if you don't feel confident in what you're throwing out there and we've all been there, you know, you have your tough days and it's like, doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what you throw on there. Your confidence is in yeah. the you know, yeah. the toilet, then all of a sudden you get a, um, a tug on something. It's like, okay, game on. Right. Or you get yeah, that throat, yeah. throat sample and you can kind of yeah. hammer down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, another author I read that's, that said, we fishermen are actually the worst in the world at experimenting and, and discovering because when the bite is on, if I've got a lure that's working, why would I change anything? But that his proposal, his hypothesis was that's exactly the time to experiment and throw things around and see what's working better or not. But it just seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? I totally agree. I got to admit, <laughs> that's what I do. And I drive my fishing buddies nuts because I do yeah. change flies a lot. When it's on, I do change. When it's... Find out. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, some, some days, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> no, You're chasing everything. Yeah. You know? As long as it's in the zone, yeah, they're hungry, you know, and and that's been part of my my um, uh, fly fishing journey and fishing journey in general. I, you know, I'm not, I don't avoid the tougher times to fish, but I certainly do focus my time on the prime times, right? Uh, I love June, and I love late September, early October. I know the fish are going to be in a biting mood at those two times a year. Yeah. Um, if, if the only time I can go is middle of July, yeah, I'm going, <laughs> you know, but if I have my druthers, I'm going to pick those prime times and be out there when I, when, when the fish are at their best. Oh yeah. I feel that. Yeah. But we also look at elevation cause that's such a huge yeah. thing, right? Like if it's, yeah. if it is July and you got to go in July, then why not just go up a little higher where, little where those chronomids yeah. might still be popping. Right. Yeah. So that's an interesting note. One of the places we've got near to us, we've got Strathcona Provincial Park within a half hour of my house here. And that's close to the ski hill in Mount Washington. Um, usually the snow finally disappears from the trails there about late June or early July. And we've got this area called Forbidden Plateau up there, a beautiful area. It's got about a dozen different lakes. They're really high. We're talking about 1,100, 1,200 meters and up. And uh, that's when the fish in those lakes come on. They stalk those those lakes, 
at, with rainbows. And I get, I like to hike in these all hike in lakes. So I've got my pack sage pack rod and uh, a real, a small box of flies, usually micro leeches and, and stuff like that. Uh, generalist nymphs and my backpack and, and we'll go in and we'll just fish the shores of those lakes in, in early July. Cause that's when they come on and they're on all summer because they're so high and the fish are just crisp, clear, bright little jewels that pull out of those lakes. It's just amazing. Yeah. And what, what beautiful country to be in. We're in the Beaufort range of the mountains here on the island. And those, those mountains have their ice fields on them and the trees, everything's like spring up there again in the middle of July. Yeah, that's, I love those little gems. Like there's some alpine lakes near me, same thing. Those fish are just so beautiful. Yeah, they don't get that big, but who, yeah. who cares? They're still fun. Who cares? To yeah. yeah, they're 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 like they're like pulling rubies out of the water, right? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> ruby, I like the way you hit on the ruby as far as the Thai yeah. club. That's a gooder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Rick, thank thanks so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate your time. I love what you're up to. Um, I wish you a great uh, season at the tying bench, and hopefully, uh, if you're ever up in the interior, we can chase some fish up this way. That would be a that would be a pleasure, a joy to do. But yeah, the people that listen to your podcast enjoy this. And uh, I hope they have a great winter and a great Christmas. It's coming up soon. Merry Christmas to to all of you. You've been listening today to a chat with Rick Jansen out of Black Creek, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. Uh, Look him up, private guide for the Taiyi Pool in Campbell River. Thanks so much for joining us this time around. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.